starting about 14 months ago, I began praying each month with uh, roughly four different pastors from the East Shore and the West Shore. We got together that first month, and there was four of us, and, and we, we had a targeted purpose. It was just to pray for our congregations and to pray for the well-being and health of, of pastors, ourselves, and, and those that weren't represented there, and, and mostly to pray for um, an awakening in our community. So we pledged to get together the first Wednesday of every month, and we have been doing that. And um, for most of those uh, 14 months, it's been four or five of us. And this past week we met, and there were 10 of us. Um, so I don't know where they're coming from, but guys are starting to get the hint that maybe if we want to change the world that we live in, pastors and church leaders should get together and pray uh, that Christ would, would do something. I was encouraged by that because some of the stuff we pray for is this gospel mission that we, we preach in our church. And I should clarify, I, I made Sabrina sound really terrible when I said that she's just up and leaving. Uh, that's not true. She has good reason for doing that. Um, in order to enable Tim to do what he's doing, fam- families make decisions when you church plant. you got to adjust things and operate on the fly. And uh, so uh, Sabrina's going to probably take a a full-time position um, with Chick-fil-A so that she can um, be the support to her family that will allow Tim to church plant. So, um, yeah, Sabrina's not just cutting and running on us. Uh, she's she's doing what she, she needs to do, um, which I fully encourage her in that. But it, it's such a joy to be a part of a church that's, that's planting churches, and, and that's birthed out of a, a biblical vision that we have in our church, and that's birthed out of a... Uh, understanding of God's Word and who He is and what authority He holds over our lives. And that that brings us to our text today, which if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter 11. Perhaps, well, I would say not perhaps, this is my favorite miracle in the entire uh, New Testament. Perhaps even the entire Bible, this is my favorite miracle today. Because in this miracle... In the the raising of Lazarus, which we'll read about in a second, we see uh, not only the title of this, well, we see the power and authority of Jesus Christ on full display. This this miracle isn't so much about us as it is about who Christ is and and the authority of God to do whatever He wishes. Um, And this shouldn't become lost on us. And I titled this message, Even the Dead Must Obey Him, because that's exactly what happens here. The dead are forced to obey the power and authority of God. That sounds ridiculous in our educated society today, but it's not changed. There's not one single thing in this world, dead or alive, created, everything's created by Him, everything must obey Jesus Christ. And, and that includes uh, whatever um, rejects and sinners that we have in office in this government or any, any sinners that sit in any government across the world. Uh, it does not matter about party affiliation. It doesn't matter about their allegiances or how deep their pockets are. I just sometimes wake up and have to rest in the simple fact that Christ is in charge and 
everybody and everything must obey him. That's the loudest message that this uh, that this miracle that we're about to read about just screams out at me. It's something that should constantly be renewing us and remaking us. So as we come to John 11, John chapter 10 ends with the Jews asking Jesus to tell them plainly if He's the Messiah. And He says, well, I did. I mean, I did all these works, but not only that, I told you. And then He says, in keeping with last week's message, He says, but you're not My sheep, so you don't hear My voice. I told you, you're just not hearing it. So what do they do? They do what they always do. You know, they pick up stones. They get ready to to kill him, and Jesus does what he does. When it's not his time, he disappears. He it says he eludes them, whatever that looks like. So let's pick up in John chapter eleven, beginning in verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who was anointed, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Him, saying, Lord, He whom You love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he had said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of the death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. You can put in there, Lazarus has died, you fools. That's what I'm talking about. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Um, We'll stop there. We'll talk about this. Now you're looking at your note sheet and you're saying, oh, dear Lord, this man has seven points today. Uh, How is he? No, it's it's okay. It's going to go fairly quickly. Um, But there's so many lessons that the Lord has for us, truths about him in this text. I didn't want to cheat it. So the main question today is this. Why is it even important that Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? I mean, we know that Jesus would resurrect himself from the dead uh, through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit at his own resurrection, but why did he have to do it for Lazarus? Well, there's seven answers to this. And the first is this. Raising Lazarus brings glory to God. Raising Lazarus brings glory to God. That's the, the miracle starts with this. 
This is the explanation. Before Jesus even gets there to raise Lazarus from the dead, he makes this point to his disciples, and it's important that we start here too. God is intrinsically glorious. It's who he is. There's no compromising on it. We don't need to necessarily, we don't make God glorious. God is glorious and he deserves glorification from us. Absolutely deserves it. So everything that is in existence points to the glory of God, if you think about it. The creation that we enjoy, the provision that we so freely accept from God, many times without thanks, the miracles that He performs, they point to His glory, the redemption that many of us have received through the salvation of Jesus Christ and His blood, that points to the glory of God. And mostly, Jesus Christ Himself came into the world to glorify God. This whole miracle starts on this premise. Every decision, everything that happens after this point can be summed up in the idea that this happens so that God might be glorified. If you want to know the whole premise of the New Testament, it's not so much that you and I get saved. It's not so much that Jesus performs miracles or does fancy things or says less teaches lessons of life application. Jesus Christ came into the world to bring glory to Himself and to redeem those who need saving. It brings glory to God. God has no problem at all drawing glory to Himself. He should. He must. It's who He is. He's the only one that has the right to do it, to glorify Himself. We think in the world of Twitter that everybody has the right to glorify themselves in 144 characters. Not true. That's the problem with social media, isn't it? Nobody ever paints a bad picture of themselves on social media. They do one of two things. They paint a good picture of themselves. A lot of times it's false. Or they paint a bad picture of somebody else so that they look better. God has no problem glorifying Himself because He's the only one that has the right to do it. The psalmist assures us of this when he twice repeats this question. Listen to the 24th Psalm, beginning in verse 7. He says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. See, Israel was looking for a physical king that they could glorify. So when the psalmist says, Open the gates. The king of glory is coming in. Israel would think that they were talking about a physical king. No. The only person who's worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord is the one who is glorified in the Lord Himself, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the psalmist is talking about. Who can enter in the gates of the holy city? Who is it that can bring glory unto the Lord? None other than Him who is the king of glory. God, the Trinity, exists The Father is glorified by the Son. The Son is glorified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is glorified by the Son. And the Son is glorified by the Father. And on and on and on and on. Why don't we just jump in the mix there and give glory to Him as well? 
So he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says, oh, guys, don't worry. Yeah, he's sick. But this whole thing is going to go down for one reason and one reason only, so that God may receive glory and so that His Son may receive glory. Now, inherent in this is an important question for all of us. Each one of us goes through difficulties in our life. Each one of us is going to have hard times that come upon us. We're going to have challenging things that are going to happen that are wicked and evil many times. They make no sense. But lo and behold, they've come across the throne of God and they've been permitted in your life and in my life. So the question for each one of us who are in Christ, who are sheep that hear His voice, is to ask this question. Lord, how can this be used to glorify You? I don't expect everybody in the room to get that. Because I don't expect everybody in the room to be in the right place where they need to be in relation to Jesus Christ. But for those of us who are mature believers in the room who have gone through some of these things, you've sat in a hospital room at one point in time and you've asked this question. You've watched a loved one die and you've asked this question. You've sat in the front row of a funeral for somebody that you cared about more than anybody else and you've asked this question. How can Jesus Christ be glorified in this? Second is this. Not only would raising Lazarus bring glory to God, but raising Lazarus, Lazarus shows us the great love of Christ. In an almost throwaway verse here, we read this. In verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Boom, that's it. It's almost like parenthetical. It just kind of got dropped in there, right? God doesn't just drop things into His Word without significance. The love of Christ must never be confused with the circumstances of our life. We assign the depth of the love of Christ for us based upon the circumstances of our life. If things are going good, we assume that Jesus is really loving us. If things are difficult or hard, we assume that Jesus must be disappointed in us or that His love has arrived at some shallow level in our life. Not true. Not true. This is not a throwaway verse. In the midst of this tragedy that has uh, beseeched this family, God felt it so important in the midst of these circumstances to drive this point home. Yes, Lazarus is sick. Yes, Lazarus is going to die. Yes, God is going to get glory out of it. And through it all, we must remember that Jesus loves them immensely. I don't care what you're going through. I mean, I do care. But what I'm saying is, regardless of the circumstance, don't throw away this truth. Jesus loves you immensely to the point where perhaps, or I know this for a fact, the only unchanging love in your life that's not hinged to circumstance is that of Christ. Other human beings, we all know this, love is fleeting, right? It comes and it goes based upon how they feel or what's going on in their life or whether you've done your hair a certain way or whether you've put on a few pounds whether you've said the right things or the wrong things to them, 
Love, in their mind, can come and go, but the love of Christ is not hinged upon circumstances of life. The love of Christ is constant, never-ending, and so deep, we can't comprehend it. Now think about this. This is not a, a, an insignificant statement either in the standpoint of what he's... Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Lazarus, who Jesus knew was about to die. Jesus loved him. Talk about... Um, what would we call this family today? Um, it's, 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 it's not your typical family. This was a culturally deficient family back in the day. There, was a, there were two women. We don't know their marital status. They were unmarried at the time. And a brother who was probably the supporter of the family. And now the supporter of the family is about to die. It would be easy to throw Christ under the bus. It would be easily easy to throw God under the bus and say, you know what? Here's a family that is hurting already. They have all kinds of life circumstances that are countercultural. They already have two strikes against him. And now God is going to allow the only supporter, provider, male figure in the lives of these two women to perish. But yet we're reminded Christ loves them. He loves them. And we're about to see that love on full display. Just like we see it in our own life if we're looking for it. Third point. Raising Lazarus shows us God's great sovereignty. God's great sovereignty. The easiest, most obvious point to preach out of this today. The, the messenger comes, says to Jesus, hey, that one that you love, the sisters want you to know the one you love is, is really sick. Now, most of us, what would we do? We jump in our car, we get in a, 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 as quickly as possible down to the hospital, or we get to their home, we surround ourselves around them. And Jesus, who had just said, just said he loves them, what does Jesus do? Let's wait a couple more days. I know he's sick. Let's make sure he's dead before we go. I mean, holy cow. Talk about counterintuitive. Why would he do this? Because he's about to show himself in an amazing way. He's about to bring an amount of glory to himself and to the Father that is incomprehensible. He is about to tick off the Pharisees and the religious leaders to the point where they will now not be able to turn back. He's sealing his own fate with this miracle. It's not Lazarus who's going to be the one that ends up dead. It's going to be Jesus who's the one that ends up dead. And in order to do that, it meant waiting a couple more days. Timetables, here's the thing. Timetables, we all do it. Maybe you say you don't, but... We all place timetables on God, don't we? If we're being honest, timetables are our own doing. We expect to see God do things. Lord, if, if you don't do things now, I give up. Lord, I need to know by such and such a time. 
Lord, would you please show me because I can't take this frustration anymore. Lord, do it for me. Do it, do it, do it. But there are doing. You can't oblige God. It's impossible. So, timetables placed upon God usually result in frustration and they end up resulting in lessons in patience for us. And they usually result in His glory. God's timetable is never wrong. And therein lies the point of sovereignty. It would be easy for Jesus' disciples, when they find out that Lazarus is sick, I'm sure his disciples knew who Lazarus was, when they say that Lazarus is sick, it would be easy for them to begin to chastise him and say, hey, you you got this all wrong. You're going to wait two days? That's crazy. Jesus, you have to go now. I mean, listen to me. I know you think you're a good teacher. I've seen you do some amazing things. But Lord, you're screwing up on this one. Let me instruct you. As, and as the Lord said to Job, who are you to instruct me as to what I need to do? At the end of chapter 10, we see it says that Jesus withdrew across the Jordan, probably for one main reason, to put himself out of the jurisdiction of the Jerusalem leadership. Most likely it says he crossed the Jordan out of Judea, which means he, he ended up in uh, Perea, which is today modern-day Jordan, the country of Jordan. It's about, uh, depending on what pace you travel, if you're Jesus traveling with the crowds that he traveled with, probably closer to a two-day walk, but it's a one- to two-day walk um, from Perea to Jerusalem. Bethany was a, a suburb of Jerusalem, So roughly one to two days to get from where Jesus was to Jerusalem. So here's how the timetable went down. Mary and Martha sent a messenger from Bethany to Jesus. So if he made it there in, let's say, a day, if he hurried, he would have made it to Jesus in a day. Jesus says, we're going to wait two more days, and then probably one to two more days after that before he and the crowds could get back to Bethany. So we're talking four to five days of waiting. Four to five days for Mary and Martha from the time they sent that messenger until they knew anything about the whereabouts of Christ. And I have no doubt in my mind that they had a depth of belief in Jesus that He had some sort of power over this situation. Probably if He had reached Him while He was alive. They weren't thinking about the power of Jesus if their brother had actually died, which is what Jesus allowed to happen. Dead four days. And yet the only one in the whole bunch who had no doubt about the results was Christ Himself. Let's just think about that and take comfort in your own life for a second. You have doubts about your circumstances. You have doubts about your timetable. You have doubts about how things are going to work out. The only person in your life that does not have doubts is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He's been to the end of it. And even the things that seem like death to you are nothing to Him. Fourth, raising Lazarus 
models courage and faith amidst opportunity. Raising Lazarus models courage and faith amidst opportunity. Here we see two different perspectives based upon differing realities. The disciples were dealing in the realm of fear and threat. Remember the first thing came out of their mouth, Jesus, you're going back there, sounds a little crazy town to me. Because, don't you remember, not that long ago, they were picking up stones and they were trying to kill you, and now you want to go back there. I don't get it, Jesus. That doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus was dealing in the realm of spiritual truth and kingdom work. Jesus knew exactly what the stakes were, but he also knew what the results would be. Courage is fueled by faith to move from one of these realities to the other. Courage is fueled by faith in order that we might move from a spirit of fear and doubt to a spirit of promise and kingdom. We're either driven by fear or we're driven by faith. Courage is the result of those who are driven by faith. These guys knew what the threat was. Jesus knew the impending opportunity in raising Lazarus. The disciples weren't getting it. But then there's Thomas. I mean, he's the only guy that's really quoted here by name. Thomas. We all know Thomas. Thomas is the guy that later on in Scripture would, would doubt Jesus. Thomas is the guy who would say, you know, unless I, unless I touch his hands and, and feel his side, I'm not going to believe he's really resurrected. And Jesus appears to him. But Thomas says um, what I think are easily confused words. He says, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now the sarcastic, cynical side of me reads that, and I want to think that Thomas is being kind of cynical himself, a little passive-aggressive. Great, if Jesus wants to go, let's just all go and die. right? I mean, I've been that guy. I've spoken like that. Not necessarily about Jesus, but about other things in life. Great, if this is what you want to do, we'll just go as a family. We'll all suffer together. Um. I don't think that's what Thomas is getting at here. Thomas is saying, Lord, if you're going, we'll all go. And if it means death, so be it. They didn't want to leave his side. There was a sense about them that if Jesus was involved in it, no matter what the result was, it was good. And therein lies another lesson. We worry about the consequences instead of worrying about obedience. Obedience in Christ always ends with good results. You say to yourself, man, I've seen a lot of people that have been obedient to Christ and their lives have ended in death. There are missionaries out there today that that exact thing is happening to them. There are people who say, I've, been obe- I've seen people be obedient to Christ and it just results in suffering. How is that a good end? Well, who defines what a good end is? God defines what a good end is. The kingdom of God moving forward. The name of Christ being proclaimed. 
a, a positive witness being proclaimed to your community and to a nation, that's a good end. Even if it means suffering in the end of our lives as we know it. Thomas says, well, I'd, I'd rather follow Jesus than die than hang out here without Christ. May it be with us. And as much as this miracle is about bringing glory to God, it also parallels in the increasing of the disciples' faith. Jesus even said so, like, I'm doing this so that you guys might believe. We read this text of Scripture about Lazarus being raised from the dead. Why? So that we might sit here this morning and believe in a deeper and more real way in the power of Christ in our life. Faith and courage, they just go together like David and Goliath. If, if I had more time this morning, again, I, I could just teach the lesson of David and Goliath over and over again. But in the story of David and Goliath, there's the practical. And the practical says stand on the sidelines like his brothers and allow the lost pagan heathens to mock the people of God. And then there's David. David is is our example of when faith says, take courage and slay the pagan in the name of God. We either camp out on the sidelines because of the fear of the consequences, Or, by faith, we take courage and we get in the game and we engage in what God is doing. Thomas says, even if I die, I'm going to go with you. I like that. Fifth, raising Lazarus affirms Jesus' power over death. Now we're getting into some real stuff. Jesus' raising Lazarus from the death Uh, from um, from death, affirms Jesus' power over death. You know, it says in Scripture that um, Jesus Himself said that He is just doing what He sees the Father doing. His ministry on earth was simply doing what He sees His Father doing. Look at John 5.19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He does only what He sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So as Jesus rolls into Bethany and raises Lazarus from the dead, we need to remember this. The business of God is raising the dead to life. That's God's job. That's what He does so well. That's what He did in my life. I've never been in a cave. I've never been in a coffin, never been in the ground. But I do know this, that as a teenager, God took that which was dead and raised it to life when I confessed my sin and put all my trust in the blood of Christ for forgiveness. Many of you in this room have experienced that same truth. You were living for other stuff. You were indifferent to God. Maybe you were hostile or angry towards Him. Maybe you were so caught up in your own hostility towards somebody else that you were angry at God. And at some point in time, Jesus spoke into your life. And He removed death, and He replaced it with life. The Son has been given this power as part of the Trinity to raise the dead. This is why believers are assured of eternal life. 
And the day is coming when He will even raise our own bodies, our physical bodies, to life, just like Lazarus. You don't think about your bodies that way. But there's going to be a time where this hideous, ugly flesh that we all wear is going to rise up again. And He's going to remake it. A new body. Just like Lazarus, He's going to call us with a shout. A shout. Did you notice that? Let's read this. The climax of the story in John chapter 11. I'm skipping ahead for our media guys. John chapter 11, verse 17. The rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. It says, Now when Jesus came, He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to Him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met Him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Martha came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in His spirit and greatly troubled. And He said, Where have You laid Him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how He loved Him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha and the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I want to finish this point five, talking about the shout. It said that he shouted, some translations, other translations we just read said that he he cried out in a loud voice. Jesus shouts. 
at Lazarus. Why? Could he not have just quietly prayed? Whispered it? I mean, he has the authority to do that. Jesus shouts, because in a shout we see the power within Christ to do this. The shout represents the authority of Christ to do this. The shout represents Christ's command resulting in immediate obedience of the dead. When Christ speaks, when Christ proclaims, when Christ shouts, everybody, including the dead, must obey. Because He has power over even death. Listen to me. There is nothing in your life that Christ cannot speak into and provide healing, provide change, provide love, provide acceptance, provide truth. He speaks and He proclaims even life itself into our own lives. Here's why this is so important. Because there's going to be a time when Christ is going to shout again and the dead will have to obey Him again. Every dead person, not just Lazarus. Get this. Lazarus gets to experience this twice. The second time, he's going to hear the shout and he's going to be like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul tells us, for the Lord Himself, he's talking about the... Uh, talking about the rapture here. He says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, that's us who are believers, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You, like I, many of you, have buried loved ones in Christ. And the day's going to come where just like with Lazarus, because he has the power and the authority to do it, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be in the air and he's going to shout. And everybody, everybody that has been buried or cremated or spread from one end of the world to the other, just like He took dust from the earth in the creation and He molded it together and He formed a body, He is going to raise those who are dead in Christ up to meet with Him. And if we're lucky enough to be alive, I say lucky enough, if we happen to be alive at that, some of us would say, I don't know if that's so lucky. If we happen to be alive at that time, then He's going to draw us up to Himself as well. And we're going to meet together, and we're going to celebrate the fact that we never have to be separated physically from Christ ever again. All because Jesus has the authority to speak this into truth and power. It's about perspective in a lot of ways as well. We get so caught up in the small stuff of our life forgetting that Christ has something so big awaiting us. Sixth. Now it gets a little bit more about us. Raising Lazarus moves 
Jesus' disciples to personal confession. I believe there's a salvation that happens here. Martha's encounter with Jesus here is so telling of us all because we see a progression of faith in her responses. She races out. She knows that Jesus is coming. She was trusting in a Jesus who would heal a sickness. Now she doesn't know what to trust Him for. So she rushes out and she meets Him. And her first words to Him are this, very condemning, almost like chastising. Jesus, if you just would have come and done what I expected you to do and met my expectations, Lazarus would not have been sick. Oh, how many times I'm thankful for the fact that Jesus didn't meet my expectations. My expectations fall way short and sell Jesus way short. We think our expectations are the pinnacle of what our life needs to be. Nothing could be farther from the truth. To quote the prophet Garth Brooks, thank God for unanswered prayers, right? Martha comes out and she's like, man, Jesus, if you had just been here, you could have kept him from being sick. And what's her premise for saying that? She'd seen him do it over and over and over again. Why would her brother be any different? She knew how much Jesus loved her brother. You know what this kind of faith is? This is a a self-centered, complaining faith. This is the holding Jesus to our expectations kind of faith. If you'd just done this, Jesus, things would not have gone this way. I wouldn't have lost this job. I wouldn't be stuck with this man or woman. I wouldn't be in this situation in life. Jesus, if you'd just done things my way. But then we see a hint of her, not not her um, complaining, self-centered faith, but let me recount this again. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now I see a a bit of a switch in her confession. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. What's this about? Now she's moved on to kind of a, instead of a self-centered complaining faith, it's a little bit more of a limited faith. It's, It's based upon her conviction. She has a, a somewhat of a foundational understanding of a resurrection. I mean, the, the, the Jews in that day would have been taught a, a resurrection after life was over. She says, God will give you whatever you ask. She believed in the resurrection. She believed in life after death. You know what? There's a lot of people that are going to hell in the world today that believe in life after death. They have a faith in something. They just don't have the faith that Martha is about to arrive at. Because Jesus calls her out on this faith as well. Let me say that again. There are a lot of people that believe in life after death. They have that faith. But they're still going to hell. see them all the time at funerals. I've done funerals for those people. 
Jesus responds to her this way. And she says, I, I believe that it will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And now she comes full circle. She comes exactly where Christ has wanted her to be. You say, why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? Here's one great example of why Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Because just like Peter, Martha's confession here is telling Now Martha says, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. People live in me. And Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's it. Peter said the same thing to Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. When he said, who do do the people say I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're a prophet. But you, who do you say I am? And all the other guys remain, sit there in stunned, stupid silence. And yet Peter, Peter says, I think you're the Christ. I think you're the Son of the living God. I don't think any of this stuff would be happening. I don't think you'd be doing these things. I don't think you'd be speaking these things if you weren't the Christ, the Son of God. And there is the difference in faith. A person can believe that there'll be a resurrection. A person can say that they're a person of faith. A lot of people in the world are there, folks. But it doesn't get them to heaven. What gets somebody to heaven is when they say, you, Jesus, are the Son of God. You, Jesus, are the Messiah. Or as the Greek word for it is, you are the Christ. In you is life. You are the resurrection and the life. I, I, could, I could be reincarnated as a bunny rabbit. That's what I think. That's my faith. I think that I'm going to come back as a pretty flower someday. I think I'm going to come back as my great-great-grandchild. You laugh. We've all heard this goofy stuff. I think that I'm going to not die, but actually I'm going to pass through to another state of perfect existence and ethereal happiness where I'm going to play drums all the time because that's my favorite thing to do is to play drums. Or I'm going to eat pizza and hang out and watch baseball. That's my idea of heaven. And we laugh, but that's a lot of times that's people's idea of life after this one. Jesus is in. No time for nonsense. Your brother's going to live again, but he's going to be living because he's living in me. I'm the resurrection and the life. The world hates this message. The world hate you want to give the world two verses that will just anger them to no end. John 14, 6. And you give them this verse here. John eleven twenty five. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And the really offensive part, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is saying there's no name under heaven by which man may experience eternal life except Christ. Jesus clarifies this with the core of Christianity. Martha now confesses a foundational faith like Peter. It's, 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 It's not only foundational, but it's personal. She didn't make this decision for Mary. Mary didn't make this decision for her. 
before Lazarus was even raised from the dead, she says, you are the Christ. I believe you. That's the way it works. There's no confession after death, folks, for us. There's some goofy evangelical, warmer, evangelical false teachers out there that have started to teach this. That Jesus is so big and so powerful that He can even save people after they die. Rob Bell. Run from people like that. We exist today to do the work of gospel evangelism. Once a person dies, there's no going back. We confess while we live. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, John would later go on to say, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son on the resurrection and the life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's pretty straightforward and simple, is it not? If you have Christ in your life, if you have faith in Christ as life, you have life. If you separate yourself from that, if you remain distant from that, if you believe in something that involves anything other than Jesus Christ as the only way, you do not have eternal life. Lastly is this, this morning, point seven. Raising Lazarus moves his disciples to roll away stones. Raising Lazarus moves his disciples to roll away stones. Think about the faith and obedience that was required. There were men there, just like Jesus' own tomb. It was not uncommon to prevent the stench over the, the, the years and to prevent grave robbery. They would take a heavy stone, they would roll it in front of the cave in order to keep robbers out and keep the stench in. It required strong men, often many of them, to move these stones into place and to roll them away. And yet Jesus shows up and He says, roll the stone away. He could have done it Himself. We know that because He did later on when He was in the tomb Himself. There were no strong men around to roll the stone away. God didn't need it. He just rolled the stone away. But here, He tells the people who are there in Bethany, roll the stone away. Why? See, random, unnamed folks could experience the obedience of rolling away the stone. They might not have known the end result, but they knew the stench. They're standing there. They know how bad this is going to smell. And Jesus says, roll it away anyway. Oh, you don't get it. I mean, it's foul. No, roll it away. Here they stood before a crowd of doubters, prepared to practice obedience despite the ridicule. And yet Jesus said to those disciples there in that moment, He said, roll the stone away. And they did. And here's the truth of it all, folks. We're all called to roll away stones as God moves others from death to life. There are going to be things that Jesus calls you to and that He calls me to that are going to require obedience. They're not going to make a lot of sense. It's going to involve a pretty smelly situation. And yet God says, your job is to roll the stone away and let me raise the dead to life. 
oh no, you don't know how much that conversation is going to be really uncomfortable, Lord. Or if I'm supposed to go to that person and speak to them about the truth of the gospel, they may not like me anymore, Lord. Or they may think that I'm a fundamental Bible-beating crazy idiot, Lord, if I talk to them about you. I'm going to be ridiculed. Don't you get it, Jesus? And yet Jesus stands there and He says, you have a job Roll the stone away so that I may raise the dead to life. And they did. And guess what Jesus did? He raised the dead to life and He brought glory to Himself. And in the process, He brought a lot of hatred and animosity upon Himself as well. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, by the way. Jesus brings glory to Himself and a lot of hatred and animosity comes with it. So here we go, church. Two things to remember this morning. One, are you where Martha was? Have you come to that point where you've gone from maybe doubting to believing in life after death to finally saying you are the resurrection and the life. I have no hope in heaven apart from you. I believe you, Jesus, are going to raise me to life. Because if not, there is no promise of heaven. There's only the guarantee of eternal punishment, which the Bible calls hell. I stand and preach every week. I share the Gospel with people so that they do not have to experience the punishment that their sin requires, but that they experience life that Jesus has in store for them. Today, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to respond. It's simply a matter of coming to Christ and saying exactly what Mary or what Martha said when she said, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you're going to raise me from death to life because of what you did on the cross. You took the penalty for my sin. Now there are some of us in here, we need to take a step of faith. Like Thomas did. Wherever you lead me, Lord, I'll go even if it means death, even if it means uncomfortable conversations, whatever stone you have for me to roll away so that somebody can move from death to life, I'm prepared to go. I'm telling you, there's nothing more fulfilling in life than to be the guy that rolls the stone away and see Christ work in His power. Somebody at your workplace, a friend or a relative, Somebody that you've known for a long time, they need this stone to be rolled away so that they can experience the power of Christ in their life. Let's do it. Would you pray with me, please?